everyone. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. This next interview was so cool. I got to sit down with the person responsible for making some of Hollywood's greatest movies and some of my personal favorites. Jeffrey Katzenberg has produced some of entertainment's greatest hits, bringing us under the sea with Ariel in The Little Mermaid and teaching us the circle of life in The Lion King. I still remember walking out of the movie singing The Little Mermaid to myself uh, and thinking that I was Ariel. Now, Katzenberg is also famous for getting fired by Disney and starting a new company, DreamWorks, which redefined animation for a digital age, bringing to life a green ogre and his best friend Donkey in Shrek, and a kung fu fighting panda named Poe. Today, with the streaming competition heating up, Netflix raising their prices, the release of Disney+, Plus, Katzenberg is placing his next big bet on short-form video with a new startup and another billion dollars in his pocket. He's tapped former HP and eBay CEO Meg Whitman to run it. And on this edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, I spoke with the founder and chair of Quibi, also the former DreamWorks CEO and chair of Disney, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Excited. So, Little Mermaid, Flashdance, Star Trek, <laughs> Lion King. I could talk to you for hours about each one of these movies. Um, how has Hollywood another, changed? Another era, another time. Well, wow. exactly. How has Hollywood changed since you were producing Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast? Night from day. Different world, different business. Um, you know, great storytelling never changes. Those are movies that all touch the heart. That really hasn't, you know, changed in, in, in you know, the still that sort of form of great two-hour storytelling of movies and, you know, television of sort of one-hour storytelling. Those things have, you know, are tried, true, tested. People still value them. There's more movie watching today than ever before. Maybe not in the same places, maybe not on the same devices, maybe not through the same pipes, but the storytelling is actually kind of consistent. Now there's a type of storytelling that's changed. I was teasing my old partner, Steven Spielberg, a couple of weeks ago, you know, that when he did Jaws, he had to have a cut out of a piece of plywood and drag it behind a boat. There were no special effects. And so, if you go back to the 70s and 80s, movies were, you know, driven more by people stories and, and, and less by the spectacle because we couldn't make spectacle. And so technology and innovation have allowed the types of stories you can tell and the way in which you tell them to change, but it's still good storytelling that matters most. In a way, you're betting on technology with Quibi, right? These short form videos. I've always bet on technology. Technology is always, I mean, I, again, I go back to, you know, Walt Disney was a technologist. He pioneered and innovated all sorts of techniques that allowed him to make the movies that, you know, he made. For sure, that technology has impacted me and the types of movies and stories we've made. Nowhere is that more true than in animation, where the impact of Computer animation completely transformed it. Remember, I grew up in an era of hand-drawn animation, so to make that transition was a, a, a high bar and a 
great challenge to, to do, but exciting and, you know, created a whole, you know, sort of renaissance in animation. So technology has always been something I've, um, in fact, that's how Megan, Meg Whitman and I came to be buddies with one another. When she was CEO of Hewlett Packard, their number one technology partner platform, Lighthouse, was DreamWorks Animation. So yes, technology is essential to the success of Quibi, which is why Meg and I are partners. It's why I sought her out to be the CEO of the business. So having spent most of your career making feature films, some television, why do you think six, 10 minute length shows are the future? Well, because the world has changed. And it's only a dozen years ago, you know, that, you know, Steve Jobs and his genius invented this, created this. And it turns out, particularly among the core audience that we're interested in, that if you're 25 to 30 years old, you get up every morning, and between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., this device is with you. You spend five hours on it today. We know that. And what are you doing? You're communicating, collaborating. You're on social media. You're playing casual games. And right now, today, you're watching more than 60 minutes of bite-sized content on the go during your day. Different from Netflix, different from HBO, different from broadcast television. Our use case, which is now tried, true, tested, and proven, the market is there. There are two billion people who are watching an hour of short-form content on the go every day around the globe. If we go out and capture literally 2%, 3% of that addressable audience, we will have one of the great blockbuster businesses of all time. And you've had so much success in your career. What does success look like for you? The moon, the stars, <laughs> the sun, the galaxy, and everything in between. I mean, I think we are setting out to do something that if it succeeds, and obviously I believe deeply that it is going to succeed, will be one of the great entrepreneurial opportunities of my lifetime. At the turn of the 20th century, the form and format of storytelling were movies, and they were two to three hour stories, and we went and we saw them in a movie theater in a single set sitting. In the 1950s, a new form of narrative storytelling came along called television. And it had chapters that were one hour long, but they tended to be stories that were either episodic, one hour on it, in and out, or they were serialized, and they would be 13 to 26 episodes in length. Today, what we're setting out to do with Quibi is to sort of converge those two ideas together to create something new and different. And so to us, a, a series is two to three hours in length, but in chapters or act breaks that are under 10 minutes long. And you're talking about like $6 million an Which hour. Which is the top of what anybody spends today in any television. I mean, maybe there are out of 550 shows, there, there's maybe 2% that cost more than $100,000 a minute. Um, so yes, we are at the very high end of the highest quality. Why? Because if you want the best writers, if you want to deliver the production value, if you want the best actors and actresses, if you want the best directors, if you want the best sound, and you, know, you look at the setup here for, for this, you have a triple A production here today. 
you get what you pay for. You've raised a billion dollars from the major studios, from other investors. Do you think that's enough to compete with the billions and billions and billions of dollars that are being spent on yeah, content because, by Netflix yes, and others? You know, you have to start, and for sure, the billion dollars um, is, is everything we need to get up and get launched. At some point, we will go raise additional capital. Everybody has known that from day one. That's not, a, that's not new news. The billion dollars was raised on Meg Whitman, myself, and a business plan. The next billion dollars is going to be raised on incredible transparency into a fantastic management team, a company at scale, content that you can actually see, a roster of talent, a pipeline of content that's of the best IP in the world, a, a tech platform and a user interface that you'll look at and understand how singularly unique it is and as special it is as to the content itself. When you could see all of those things, now you start to get some insight into the business that we're building. That was Quibi founder and chair Jeffrey Katzenberg. Up next, his views on the streaming competition between Netflix, Apple, Amazon, and Disney, and how Quibi's Quick Bites offer a different slice of the entertainment pie. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Your dad was a stockbroker, your mom was an artist, you started as an assistant to Barry Diller at Paramount. What is it that you think you did right to get to where you are? There is one thing, and I've talked about this before, that um, has really sort of been my North Star. I didn't know it was my North Star as a kid or as a teenager or working for Barry. It's only years later that I was actually able to express what it was that I was always been trying to do my whole life. And it's pretty simple, it's two words, exceed expectations. And so when Barry hired me as his gopher, you know, his assistant to, you know, run around and organize things and previews and, you know, get a script, you know, copied or whatever it was, no matter what he asked me to do, I always tried to do it more, better, faster than he anticipated or he expected me to do. And what I found is, is that, that when I did things and I did exceed uh, expectations, his or others, people would give me more opportunity and more opportunity. And then I started to realize when I go into a meeting with a staff meeting to try to exceed expectations in that. Now you can't do it all the time and you don't do it in every set of circumstances, but that idea is the thing that sort of permeated into me. And so I actually started to think about, well, every product that I make, every movie that I've ever made, we started out from a place of, can we exceed the expectations of our audience? And if we do, we will have success. And so to just sort of populate your life with that idea became just the most rewarding and compelling and exciting thing. And I think about it in terms of my children you know, I actually, you know, they're 35 years old. I still think about, are there things that I can do to surprise them to exceed their expectations, as, reliable, as predictable as that is? I just had my 45th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. I think about how do I exceed the expectations of my wife, because it's important to me. That's it. Those words are, are I think, you know, 
Well, the other stuff, I have no idea. You know, where does a good idea come from? Where does the ability to recognize a good idea? Where, I, I have no idea. I think a lot of that was great training. I've had great mentors in my career. Some of the very best and most brilliant people, you know, having David Geffen and Steven Spielberg and Barry Diller and Michael Eisner. I mean, these are, these are people who were brilliant at their, and, and far beyond me. And they were people that in different stages of my career took me in, believed in me, supported me, forgave me for my sins, <laughs> sometimes, not always. You know, they mentored me in the true sense of it. Your career at Disney was legendary for the highs and, you know, much has been written about your exit. Is that something that you carry with you? Nope. So I've had five careers, literally. So I should yeah. say Katzenberg 5.0 is where we 6 are. 6.0. I'm on number six. <laughs> okay. Right? So seriously, you know, I had a career in politics and government when I was literally a teenager and in my young 20s. I had 11 years at um, Paramount, um, 10 years at Disney. Uh, 10 years at DreamWorks in a partnership with Steven and David, and then 12 or 13 years of DreamWorks Animation as an independent, uh, standalone public company. Each chapter for me, somehow or another, has gotten better than the one before it. I don't know why. I don't know how. It's not something that one could have expected, right? It, 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 in some instances, that would seem improbable, if not impossible, that I could have a better run. And somehow or another, every time, it in fact has occurred. So getting fired from Disney was as humiliating and low a moment as I have had in my career. Eight days after I left the Walt Disney Company, humiliated, embarrassed, hurt, broken from a 19-year partnership and marriage, eight days later, I announced a partnership with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen to start DreamWorks Animation, where we had raised $2 billion to, to do the company. Eight horrible days. Oh, my. <laughs> That's so, it. So, you know, a chapter closes, and I don't know about you, but I don't go back and read chapters again. So let's talk about the present sure. and the future. Sure. Have you ever seen so much disruption in the entertainment industry? No. Who are the winners and who are the losers? Well, I think it's early in the game to be calling winners and losers in something that is in sort of almost cataclysmic transformation where virtually every other day or week there is something that is a tectonic shifting of the plates. It's a little bit hard when you're in the center of that storm to, to have perspective on it. Who will be the winners? Well, the winners are going to be the ones that have the biggest and best businesses by the, you know, and, and have the greatest leaders. And so you can't help but look at and admire uh, what Bob Iger has done. I was just going to say, is Disney one of those companies? A hundred percent. I mean, he has made what may be one of the boldest, most ambitious bets that anybody in modern business has ever made. They are the number one company today as an entertainment uh, media company without peer have the best franchises, have the best IP. He decides that his, the future of that enterprise, of which he's the steward of the moment, he's, you know, he, he actually has a good deal of humility about it. He realizes he's got the baton, he's gonna run with it, and he is going to pass it at some point. 
And he has decided during that, after 12 of the most spectacular years as a CEO, he's decided to push all the chips in to say, for this company to have as great a future as it has a past, he has to transform it. Bet on Bob Iger. All right. No problem. Would you bet on Reed Hastings? A hundred percent. And I would bet on uh, Steve Burke and, and Brian Roberts. Um, I would bet on AT&T. These are phenomenal enterprises, great leadership. They are all going to be in some fashion, shape, or form. It's not clear what that is yet, but they're all going to come out of this with some win. Do you think content is still king when there is no. so much content? No. So what makes a king or a queen? Platform. So I grew up in an era that content is king. Content is king maker, but clearly today, platform is the king. And what I mean platform is, Netflix is a platform. Its content has made that platform successful, but the platform itself is worth $200 billion. So the value of that enterprise is far greater than the content, but without that content, they would not be king. You were instrumental in bringing Pixar and Steve Jobs to Disney. Do you think that Apple today can succeed in this, in this streaming business where there are these first movers? Well, it's hard to say yet. I, I, don't, I don't think one ever bets against uh, Apple. I don't think one bets against $250 billion of capital sitting in a bank somewhere, you know, just racking up a whole bunch of interest. I don't think you bet against, you know, the talent of that, that company what about and Tim the Cook? ingenuity. Yeah, I, mean, I think Tim is an extraordinary leader. And so, yes, it's been like this. So now they've got some headwind here. And so now they're gonna, he's going to be challenged in new ways. But it's a brilliant company with wildly talented people there. They're putting a toe into the water, into this content side of the business. It's not clear yet what that strategy is or what that, you know, how they're looking to monetize and capitalize on that content. But by the way, you could say the same thing about Jeff Bezos. For Would you bet, you're betting on Amazon and content? Of course you are. How do you not? But his model is completely differentiated from anybody else. He's happy to give it away to you for free. You don't need to pay anything for it. Just keep shopping. And so his paradigm is completely differentiated from these others. So now, at some point, we get to the point in which there is simply oversupply. And we've seen this in many industries before, where there's just simply too much, more than everybody, not anybody, more than everybody can actually consume. Then something shakes out. And the strongest and the best and the most creative will prevail. You're listening to my conversation with Quibi founder and former DreamWorks CEO, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Next, his reaction to Hollywood's Me Too movement, having worked with some of the most famous actors who've been exposed. I'm Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Stay with us. The Me Too movement hit Hollywood hard. Did that disappoint you? Yeah, of course it did. I think that uh, it was a long, long overdue uh, moment of reckoning. Unfortunately, some of the worst actors 
in this regard are people that have worked for me. And the level of disappointment to um, have to confront this and to, to deal with it was really hurtful and, and you know, uh, humiliating. I've grown up in this industry. Um, you know, I hope I have conducted myself, uh, you know, with a set of values and a, a um, uh, inclusiveness that re represented myself well, I hope, you know. I have been a family man. DreamWorks Animation, 55% of the leadership of the company was women. 85% of the movies produced at DreamWorks Animation were produced by women. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that That's again. Amazing. It's literally the reverse of the entire industry. Now, I did it for business reasons. Our audience is mom. So when we were making animated movies, whether my years at Disney, my years at DreamWorks Animation, our customer was mom. Mom is the gateway to those children. And if she is not uh, embracing you, you fail. And so for me, if she's our customer, how do you not have her fully represented in every aspect of what you're doing in your business? whether it's your storytelling, your filmmaking, your marketing, your distribution, if her voice is not in our room every day, we're not gonna succeed, I don't think. I didn't think we would. So I did it because I actually thought it was you know, good business. I also personally prefer you know, working with women. I'm, I'm lucky I got Meg <laughs> Whitman. You know, I've had super strong women surrounding me my entire career and it has actually served me incredibly, incredibly well, I find that women, particularly in leadership positions, just have a, a style about them, uh, particularly when it was creative enterprises that just created a, a unique uh, environment. You've been one of the most prolific Democratic donors. You were an early fundraiser for President Obama. Is there anyone attracting your eye right now? Well, there are lots. It's just too soon. I know everybody wants to call the race, and it's, it's too early. So there's no name that I have for you that is a new name that we haven't all heard in some fashion, shape, or form. Um, but it's too early. What do you want to see happen in 2020? Well, I'd like to see a, you know, I'd, I'd like to see the pendulum swing back. You know, in my lifetime, um, I, I have watched how, um, you know, we just swing so, you know, strong from one extreme to another extreme, I wish we could actually swing back to the middle. And that's the thing that I, you know, I find. So whether it's Clinton, you know, to Bush, you know, Bush to Obama, Obama to Trump, these are, th these are profoundly hard swings from one side to the other side of it. And I, I just wish we could find a place that is more inclusive, where we're not creating this tribalism, where we can find a place where people actually can have different, I mean, Meg Whitman and I are complete opposites. Like, you cannot imagine how opposite she and I are from one another. We like laugh about it now, you know? And we found that place where we realized that, that the fact that we are so opposite is our superpower because she looks at things from a completely unique and different perspective from me and I do from her and when we're able to hear each other and to express ourselves and to get our ideas out, 
you know, we find that center ground. We find that place where the right answers reveal themselves and you move on. And that has not existed for now too long um, in our democracy. As you go into Katzenberg 6.0, what is the advice that you would give to your teenage self? No is not an answer. Why not? Because I don't like it. <laughs> the word no just doesn't work for me. You famously edited 12 minutes out of an animated movie, yourself personally. I mean, how in the weeds do you plan to get in this new thing? We are not the makers of content, we're curators. Our job is to actually go out and to gather from the most talented people, the very best ideas, give them the resources uh, and the platform for them to do their work. So there's a difference between that, between being a curator and a platform and being the storyteller yourself. So I'm not the one telling the stories today. I just want to go recruit in the best people that I can and, and give them the opportunity for them to do that. So different kind of weeds, <laughs> different field. All right, Jeffrey Katzenberg, so great to have you here great. on the Thank show. You. Thanks. Bloomberg Studio 1.0 is produced and edited by Kevin Hines. Our executive producer is Candy Cheng. Our managing editor is Daniel Culbertson. I'm Emily Chang, your host and executive producer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.